Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And on today's show, I have the honor of welcoming back the always uplifting, inquisitive, and maybe the most insanely positive human being I've stumbled across in my journey through life, Sky Matsuhashi. Sky's the creator and founder of the massively popular Smart Poker Study podcast, as well as the poker training platform, ThePokerForge.com. He's also the author of four books, including How to Study Poker, Volumes 1 and 2, Preflop Online Poker, and Postflop Online Poker. Here's a behind-the-scenes story as to the standard of performance in which Sky holds himself. There's actually a lost episode in between Sky's first appearance on CPG episode 19 and the show you're about to listen to today. In that lost episode, which in my personal opinion was a very valuable high-level conversation, Sky felt like he left some greatness bombs on the table and requested we give it another go. And as someone who never turns down an opportunity to have amazing conversation with folks I love and respect, we did just that and Sky did not disappoint. Here are some greatness bombs you're about to hear in today's conversation with Sky Matsuhashi. How to study poker with a purpose so that you improve your skills and avoid information overload. How to effectively combat those no foldem holdem limpers you battle against on the green felt. Why knowing what you should do is a different beast than actually doing what you're supposed to do and much, much more. And now, without any further ado, I present to you four-time author, poker coach, and prolific podcaster, the one and only Sky Matsuhashi. Mr. Matsuhashi, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, Brad, and you? I'm doing very, very well. It's nice seeing your face Always a pleasant person to talk to, uplifting, positive. I always leave conversations with you in a better place than where I started. Nice. I'm I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you so very much. And I remember the last time we talked way back in December of uh, 2019 pre-COVID times, you know, Uh, time just flies, man. It's hard to believe that like 2020, it was such a weird year. I I can't really even place. I had to go back and look up our prior episodes. You had me on your podcast episode 19. I had you on my podcast episode 264. And I had no idea when it happened. I had to go back and actually physically look up the different dates. But yeah, back in 2019, what a what a crazy uh, year and a half or so it's been since we last talked. Yeah, I, I live and die by the the quote that the days are long, but the years are short. And it feels like just yesterday that you came on the, the podcast the first time. It's been a year and a half. Uh, quite frankly, it feels incredible that CPG has existed for a year and a half at this point. And I, sometimes I, I like buy domain names, right? It's like a thing that I do and I'll get reminders. I got a reminder of a do- domain name that I bought a year ago for a project that never materialized. 
And it feels like it was just yesterday. Like the time just freaking flies by. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So that domain name, I don't want you to, don't give it to me. You don't want to spoil things and put that out there probably. But did you have like a really good, was it like a crazy course idea or like a membership site that you wanted to do? No, it was like a social uh, social poker app that basically the premise of it, and I don't mind just saying it out there in the world if anybody ever wanted to do it, but basically it was a way, it was a play money way that did a more efficient job than current play money sites of tracking everybody's results. So settling up at the end of the night and all of that, um, just a way to play private tables against your friends and then settle up afterwards. Yeah. Uh, the person that actually did it very, very well and much smarter business model than me was Tom Wheaton, who made the Faded Spade private poker rooms, which you know is pretty much what I was aiming to do. But oh. then he branded it as like charity and basically sold access to the rooms themselves to brand and raise money for charity. So it was more B2B than uh you know b to c which worked out very very well for tom i'm actually happy that things fell through for me because it, it gave me bandwidth and space to make the stuff that i'm actually passionate about you know my courses that i've been releasing over time so yeah anyway not everything is a success not everything not every idea comes to fruition and that's just i think the way that reality works you just kind of keep trying and trying and eventually some things will work out for sure i agree with that and i i i believe the old adage uh, ideas are a dime a dozen there's so many ideas i have ideas all the time i've had ideas for like 17 different kinds of books i can write but they just didn't pan out like an idea great that's an an initial spark but if it doesn't develop like a sense of, I have to do that, it just kind of goes by the wayside. And I have a big long list of all different ideas I've typed out in Microsoft Word over the years, but most of them will never come to fruition. You know, they sounded really good at the time when I came up with that two sentence description of that idea, but I'm not going to follow through. Yeah, I mean, and that's just, you know, the execution. I, I was having a conversation with my family and you know, they don't always have a ton of business experience. And like my kids were really big into Shopkins and I don't know if anybody has kids and or knows what a Shopkin is or was. I don't even know if they exist anymore, but they were these little collector, silly little household things that were like micro sized. And, you know, my family's like, ah, oh, what a, what an amazing idea would have been. It's so easy. We could have done that. And I'm just like, so how do you manage production? How do you manage distribution? How do you manage creating contacts to get it in retail stores? How do you raise money for that first wave? How do you pay for marketing to all of these kids? Like, it seems like a simple idea, yet it is certainly not a simple thing to execute the idea, right? So like, simple does not always mean easy. No. Definitely not. And I bet a million people had the idea for Uber before Uber came along and actually built the website, built the app, built the infrastructure to do that, you know, but so they spent probably millions of dollars, thousands of man hours before it even hit the market, right? And your average person who says, I know I can create an app to let people drive each other around. It sounds so easy and simple until you actually start doing the work, doing the legwork necessary to figure that stuff out. Yeah, I mean, everything's just way more complex. Every project I've ever started, uh, you know, I, I started a project called, eventually called Nuffle, which was neutralized flop leads and basically mass data powered strategy on how to play perfectly when somebody donks into you on the flop, right? And I thought, mm, this is a thing that I can figure out. 
in like a day. I felt like it was a day I could figure it out, right? Because I, I always underestimate how in-depth things go. And then I realized like, okay, so you face a flop donk. Now we have a decision here. And then that decision is going to create more complexity down the decision tree. So if you raise, then what boards do you continue bluffing on? What boards do you stop bluffing on? What sizing is the optimal bluff size? What do you do with your value? Like if you call the flop and then they barrel the turn, like do we get the bluff raise? And if we do get the bluff raise, what rivers should we bluff as well? Um, and you can see that like things just, what started out as a simple thing spiraled in downward into complexity of like, wow, this game tree actually gets really, really big um, when we're taking into consideration like, you know, five different sizes villain can use, five, you know, different raise sizes that we can use and then figuring out like which strategy outperforms all the other strategies. Yeah, without a doubt. And then now that after you accumulate all that data and everything, now it's your job as the coach to distill it down to the simplest things that they could take away from watching your videos or reading your text. I don't know how you presented Nuffle uh, as a course or anything, but it's up to you now to teach all that stuff that you spent days or however long it was. Weeks. It was weeks. Weeks, so, <laughs> yeah. weeks figuring out all that info, you know? So your, your challenge didn't stop when you collected the data. A new challenge began at that point, right? And then once you create that course and you have it all set, a new challenge now marketing it like you had mentioned earlier with those little toys right like there's so many things that initially you have this idea this will be a great course people will learn from it but then the spokes just branch out from there as you keep going and it's just it's pretty interesting and even though you and i have created lots of different products uh it's still like every time we don't foresee what we're going to have to do is the next step absolutely and you you hit the nail on the head there about reducing the complexity of the data, making it visually appealing, learnable, executable, right? And I think Nuffle, Nuffle is the first course that when I saw the outcome, the end product, I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. Like, I, like it was the first, I allowed myself to give, give me congratulations. Sweet. Like, this is a one PDF thing. You just yeah. open it. It's one PDF. It's one PDF. It's very intuitive, very wow. easy to learn, very easy to execute. And yeah, it takes all that data work and data analysis that I did into consideration, which to me, I'm extremely proud of like the simplicity that, that we, that I, you know, distilled it down to at the end of the day. Yeah. But yeah, it's, and then here's another thing that happens too, that people don't often consider. If my process for data analysis improves and I'm able to Im improve my precision well, that has an effect on everything that I've ever made. And so then I need to go back and reanalyze past strategies to update them to make them current, which basically means that I'm changing uh, my, I'm regularly updating my past courses with yeah. new knowledge and information. My poor virtual assistant is like perpetually <laughs> watermarking hundreds and hundreds of PDFs to send out to my customers. But I mean, that's just, that's the reality of it. Like even once you have a thing that is done, like preflop bootcamp, is great and it's awesome and people are growing learning making money um it's really changing how my customers experience poker for the better and yet i still look at that product and i think hmm how can i make this better like this is based on optimal solves right the next step would be to design preflop bootcamp redesign it update it with preflop information that's based on mass data and big data and strategies that perform better against different player profiles. Um, and I know that like, that's the next step. It is just a Herculean task, but 
again, that's the nature of it. Like as you learn and grow, like strategies evolve. And I think that mass data analysis is at the bleeding edge as it relates to poker strategies. And so my process will just improve as I get better at it, which basically just means that every time I get better at it, there's lots of downstream work and stuff that I need to upgrade and improve. For sure. That's the way it is. I do the same thing with uh, with my membership, thepokerforge.com. But also, as soon as you mentioned, you know, create this new thing and you have to change these other things, I automatically thought of a few different podcasts, poker podcasts that I released, like whatever number it was, number, number, number 50, number 12, number 112. I'm on episode 340 something right now. So when I learn something new, sometimes I, I realize, wait a second, I said something different, or I, I had a different thought process when I did this podcast on it in the past. So what I've done, uh, just within the podcast realm is I'll delete that old podcast, and even delete the page it was on go to Libsyn and delete it from the directory so nobody can find it anymore. And then I'll create a new podcast with my with my recent learnings or, or whatever new strategy conclusions I've come up with. And I've done that quite a few times. And the great thing about that is, bam, I have an episode idea that I could do this week right now, just make some changes to this whole podcast and release it again. It saves a little bit of time on my podcast creation weekly, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, and that's a great way of serving your audience and making sure that they're always getting the right information. I would say that personally... I'm act, I'm relieved when someone changes this their strategy. When a high level player says, "Oh, I need to correct this. I need to amend this because the way that I thought about it before was not right." Because that means they're actively growing, right? They're actively growing, they're testing the strategies, they're steel manning them, which is the way that it ought to be. You know, your any strategy that I ever create, I want my people to poke it, prod it, try to break it, try to find the flaws, because ultimately that creates a stronger product. And um, I mean, this is a thing that happened, you know, maybe a few months back. Um, John, my Tactical Tuesday co-host, we were going through some strategies that I developed using mass data as it relates to defending against turn raises. And he told me, Brad, doesn't this kind of contradict what you said four months back, like during private coaching sessions about how, you know, the nature of a fish is to be passive. And when they go against their nature, like you, we really need to take that into consideration and tighten up to call down, et cetera. And I said, yeah, of course, like this does go contrary to what I said before, because I'm learning, right? Because I'm growing because like now I see the data, which is like a 30,000 foot view of what's actually happening and what they're actually doing instead of just like, anecdotal experiences of like, oh, a fish raised me one time and they had this hand. Now it's like, no, by looking at 50 million hands and all of these iterations of what fish are raising with, you get a great idea of exactly what they're doing, which is going to affect strategy. And like, if you're so hell bent on being right versus just doing the best thing that you can possibly do, then you won't change, you won't grow. And ultimately, I think that leads to your demise as a poker player. Yeah, for sure it does. And I love how you've mentioned quite a few times the word fish, tackling fish, thinking about fish. Um, I just love, I always think about fish. Like, who is my target at the table? I look for the two or three. Maybe even if I go lucky, all five players I'm up against are fish at the table, right? Depending on the site you play on everything. And I'm just all about tackling the fish, right? I understand 
trying to employ strategies like for your entire range and trying to balance your different strategies. That's all good. It is good to have balance and stuff. But when I'm in this hand right now against this fish, I understand his tendencies. My goal as much as possible is to exploit his tendencies. Maybe he's calling every flop, but folding every turn. Awesome. I'm going to double barrel every single time against this guy, double barrel bluff him, right? If I have a super strong value hand, I'll see bet on the flop, let him call on the turn. Maybe I'll check behind because he folds so often. I don't want this fish to leave, right? So I love how you mentioned that. And I know you have a course called Fish in a Barrel. And I, I was thinking about fish earlier today because I just started playing on Ignition Poker. And that site, for any listeners right now who aren't on Ignition, if you're just sticking with the main sites, the Poker Stars, the ACR or something, you've got to play Ignition. Um, it's it's just full of fish. And it's my new <laughs> it's my new love of poker, right? It's, it's spurring me to play more than I ever have. Uh, not ever have, but more than I have up to now this current year. Yeah, Ignition is good times. And, and I think the great news about Ignition too is you gain clarity on like, what everybody's doing just because you can download the hands 48 hours afterwards and you get to see everybody's whole cards, which can be very insightful as it relates to like, what are people folding to my big river bets? And, you know, did this person bluff me in this spot? If, if I make a big fold that you get to get validated or you get a reminder that you got to call lots of rivers. And, you know, the reason that I landed on fish specifically was because Imagine you're playing six-handed, right? And, you know, the regs all have an edge against you, right? Say a one big blind per hundred edge or something like that, right? So basically, four other regs are at the table. Then there's you. And so you're losing, you know, four, minus four BBs per hundred playing against these guys. And then a fish sits down and the fish is losing 20 BBs per hundred, right? Now, if everybody gets an equal share, all five of you, then that takes you from losing four big blinds to breaking even, right? So that one fish means that you're now breaking even. Fish is losing 20. All the regs are now winning like five BBs per hundred, assuming that everybody gets this, an equal share of the fish's loss rate, right? So everything that I make is to make sure you get more than your fair share of the fish's loss rate, which dramatically impacts your bottom line because that's where most of your winning comes from. Most of your winning is not going to come from battling the other regs. Um, and quite frankly, the more that I dive into it, it, it's actually turned into this little thing where I just want to solve how to optimally beat the fish so that I can then focus on the regs in the pool and construct strong strategies against them. And then basically at that point, then the game of poker is uh, just fun times all around when you have a strategy in place that you just know you can execute and you know what it is and it's automatic. And then you get to focus and free up bandwidth to battling the regs in your pool, which, I mean, I love the money that I make from the fish, but it is fun battling regs and getting into intricate spots and like the challenge aspect of that. I do enjoy that. I mean, I, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm the type of, poker player that will fire up the 1k and l at 2 p.m eastern standard time and just battle with two or three regs until you know waiting for somebody to sit else to sit at the table uh i don't really mind i accept that challenge i think it's fun but ultimately like if we're being honest with ourselves the money comes from when the weaker players sit down at the table that's where the win rate is derived from and so it's the only intelligent way i i could imagine 
tackling poker is to focus on the people that you win the most money from first and then focus on the stronger players secondly. 100%. Yeah. One of my big goals is when I sit down at a table, the first thing is I try to find who the fish are, and then I try to figure out ways that I can isolate them to myself, whether they're in the blinds. So I'm going to raise, you know, three, three and a half big blinds, whatever gets the regs to fold in the, the, the fishy player out of the blinds, just to call, they limp in, I ISO raise, they raise, I three bet, I do what I can to get those fish heads up because that's how, sure, you have the strategy against the weakest players, but you're only going to get to use your strategy if you get into hands with them, you know? So for me, that's always my first step at the table find the fish figure out how to isolate them and then of course employ those post-flop strategies that you're talking about and occasionally you can't help it those regs fight back or you're just dealt the right hand at the right time and you're you know you go up against the regs but that is those aren't situations to shy away from not that i mean obviously you tackle those situations right you don't shy away from them but that's where growth comes from, tackling those strongest players, the other strong players at the table. And that reminds me of there was a, a, a Netflix movie or maybe an Amazon Prime movie recently called Blade of the Immortal. Uh, did you watch it? I don't think so. No, I haven't ever heard of it. Yeah, it's based on a Japanese comic book, but it's a Japanese movie. And uh, a samurai warrior, he's actually a ronin, a whatever. Uh, uh, a masterless warrior. Exactly. Yes. Thank you very much. I don't um, know why or how I know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He is um, one of the best swordsmen ever. He kills a hundred. This is the beginning of the movie, so I'm not spoiling too much. Kills a hundred dudes, but then he all of a sudden becomes immortal. And because he's immortal, he kind of over time stops caring about using his skills. And so he's just going in there willy nilly hacking people and stuff, as opposed to he used to be a master swordsman. And that's how we uh, continually sharpen our saws. Not only are we studying off the felt and trying to work on trouble spots and everything, but we pit ourselves against those other players that we think are strong and figure out ways to exploit their tendencies and and avoid their exploits against us as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like uh, Alex Honnold uh, free soloing, the movie Free Solo, where he free solos El Capitan. And he talks about how he's when, he, when he's free soloing a climb, how he's so close to death that any false move will cost him his life. And that's the reality of the spots he puts himself in. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't care about living because he practices like a maniac. He prepares like an insane person of marking every single step of the way, does, you know, hundreds of climbs, you know, with harnesses and safety belts and everything to basically map out his exact strategy for when he does free solo something. But at the end of the day, he's very close to death. And because of that, when he's free soloing, he feels the most alive and he has to be present. He has to be in the moment. And I feel like that's kind of how it is when you're playing against some of the strongest players in the world. You have to notice everything. You can't miss any data points. You've got to prioritize the right thing. And if you're not seeing all the things, they will make you pay, uh, not in such a, a, an extreme version of Alex Hoddle with your life, but you will lose a stack. They will crush you and take your money. And so when you're facing a high level of competition, like you said, with risk, you're just naturally going to perform at the best of your abilities because you need to. Yeah. 100%. Anytime I catch myself, 
uh, playing robotically, daydreaming and dozing, that seems like the spots where I just get myself into, into trouble, right? Just playing robotically, button clicking, calling, three betting, whatever I'm doing. But all of a sudden, it's a turn. I get to the turn and I have second pair and it's a 50 big blind pawn. I think, how did I get here? What is going on? I don't even know who my opponent is. And I just suddenly wake up to the fact like I become president or not president, <laughs> present out of nowhere, right? Uh -huh. And I realize, holy cow, terrible spot to be in. Of course, you know, you want to do your best at that moment to to get yourself out of it, to win the pot, to extricate yourself without losing too much money, whatever the case may be. But those little spots of realization that you weren't focused, that you were playing robotically, that you weren't paying attention to all the information there, those are spots that should wake you up and have you like think back and realize what was going on. Was I looking at my phone and or on Twitter or was it Facebook or was I doing an email? Was I listening to music and I started singing along and not paying attention? I mean, when you when you find those spots where you're not focused, you're not in the zone, try to look back and analyze those and figure out what you did wrong so that you can uh, work to not repeat that next time. I can tell you what I do wrong. I came out into this world with <laughs> ADHD. And so distractions are very much a part of my life. I can't tell you, it happened to me an embarrassing amount, uh, probably 10, uh, 12, 13 years ago, where I'd be playing, you know, six tables at a time, sometimes like eight or so, but I would just sort of lose focus for a moment, daydream and look at my screen. And, you know, I'm just playing like a $600 pot with an ace and a deuce and I have no pair, no draw. And I'm just like, how, like, not just how do I win the pot, but like, how did I get here? Like, yeah. how did this happen? Mm -hmm. Um, which is, yeah, I mean, and, and that's just losing focus for a moment, taking your eyes off the ball and then you zone back in and you're like, holy shit, did, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking to get me here. And I sure as hell don't know the best path moving forward. Cause I have no idea how I got here in the first yeah. place. You can even think back to the pre-flop action. Was I the three bet or the caller? Did I squeeze somebody? What happened? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Those are the spots where I use poker tracker Four. I know you're a hold a manager guy. Um, I love poker tracker Four, but those are the spots when I wake up and realize, Holy cow, I'm in an uncomfortable spot. I don't know what I'm doing. I automatically tag it with a review tag. And then the next time I'm studying, I'm always pulling up any hands I've tagged for review. And I, I actually have come to realize that when I'm doing a study session any given day, if I do not have any tagged hands from the prior few sessions I played, there's a pretty good chance I wasn't as focused as I should be, right? Because if I'm always thinking about the situations, thinking about my opponents, there's always got to be some kind of question, some kind of nuance that I think I might be missing out on. I should constantly be tagging hands. And like, for example, if I'm playing with a focus of, uh, like you had said, in Nuffles, facing those flop donk bets, right? I should be really trying to focus and watch the action for every hand, whether I'm involved or not. If somebody donk bets into another player, I've got to put myself in that player's shoes and say, wait a second, he just faced this donk bet. What does that donk bet mean? If I were him, if I had top pair, what would I do? Second pair, if I had ace high, what would I do right there, right? So, and then if I don't know what I would do, that would be a perfect hand, even though I'm not involved, tag it force myself to think about it later on, develop some strategies. And the whole goal with that tagging and reviewing hands is so next time you're a little bit stronger, that next time you face that exact same situation and facing donk bets, that happens a lot on Ignition and, and most other poker sites as well. Fish donk about 20% of the time, 18 to 20% of the time, which is actually a really high number 
as mm-hmm. it relates to just that strategy because I know that regs do not donk anywhere near that. It's around like two to three percent, ninety. I think it's like ninety to ninety-five percent of all flop donks are done by fish. Uh, just I would in, believe it in general. Um, mm-hmm. And what's interesting about stuff like Nuffle is like you don't have to tag or even think <laughs> because the data oh, yeah. just tells you exactly what you ought to do. You just actually, it seems like too simple, but even with the answer, the right answer on what you're supposed to do, I still see people screw it up oh, regularly. Sure. It's like you got the you got the cheat sheet, you got the answer in front of you, and we're not executing it. Why? Like, what's happening here? And like, yeah. a lot of the times, it's just I, I think that people feel uncomfortable for whatever reason. Who knows? They just got stacked twice at their other tables. Their confidence is low. They just want to avoid a spot. Maybe they're trying to lock up a win. I'm not exactly sure what it is. But this is another thing that I've learned through, you know, the stuff that I create using mass data where it's like, here, this is it. This is like your gold right here. Just execute, right? That That's yeah. your job. Just execute the strategies as they're constructed. Even that that's, you know, easier said than done for some some folks. And I, and I think that that kind of, I think it ties into emotions. Like I mentioned before, they're biased for some reason. They feel like this spot is the the exception to yeah. the rule. Uh, but I think, again, that's sort of our humanity just kind of playing tricks on us because, you know, we're just incredibly prone to biases and incredibly bro- prone, bah, incredibly prone to believing that, like, you know, same guy three bets you three times in a row. They've got some sort of vendetta against you and they're just targeting you specifically. And like, they know that, you know, that they know, and they're playing like 4d chess when the reality is they most likely just got three hands that ought to be three bet three times in a row against you. Most likely yep. constructing some narrative uh, in, in your mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, speaking of what you, what you were saying about not wanting to pull the trigger on those plays that you know, you should, and maybe they're trying to book a win or they just lost um, two buy-ins. Like you had said, um, a big thing I tell my students is just do it scared. I tell you what the right strategies are. You want a three bet bluff with this hand against this type of player, raise a donk bet, uh, call, call the river bet, whatever, whatever the strategy is, as long as you've reasoned through what your opponent's range is and how it probably interacts with this board. And you, you think you understand what their bet is trying to accomplish, do it scared, right? If the donk bet is an obvious bluff, or let's say it's a blocking bet with a flush draw. Um, uh, uh, and then you know it's a blocking bet with a flush draw. You know that raising is the best play because they're blocking, they're, they're making a bluff bet right now. Raising is the best play. Just do it scared. And I don't mean scared like you're freaked out scared, but you know there's something committing chips when you see monsters under the bed or you think this is the one hand, the exception to the rule. Just do it scared anyway. And eventually those that scared feeling will start to dissipate and it'll be gone entirely. And the goal with, I'm sure, Nuffle and all of my stuff that I teach, all my courses and everything, the goal is to get you comfortable with whatever the strategy topic uh, within the video is, right? But the only way you're going to get comfortable is if you continually practice it. You look for spots to practice it. So employing the strategies, especially when you have a one-sheet PDF giving you all the answers, you have no reason to not do it. Just do it scared. Right, and I think it does boil down a little bit to trust, right? Trust in the strategy as it's constructed. Trust in the data analysis and what the data is saying. And then trusting that more than your human biases, like you leveraging that trust, uh, counting on it, like you said, doing it scared, uh, 
the funny thing is like as it relates to Nuffle and any all the stuff that I make, I could prove and show you how much money it's worth <laughs> to to for you to execute the strategies. I could mathematically I could break it down and say this wins you plus three big blinds every single time you do it. So if you fold, you're just throwing away three big blinds, right? And even that I think it's hard. You know, I think when people are afraid, when they're scared, when they're biased, when they think that this situation is different for reason X, Y, or Z, they just become much more hesitant to pull the trigger. And unsurprisingly, the folks who are the most successful through all the stuff that I make through private coaching are the ones that trust me implicitly and they just execute and they don't really ask many questions. They're like, okay, like, Coach Brad is putting me in a position to be successful. I believe in him. I believe he wants me to be successful and all the incentives align, right? Like if I start creating courses that start torching people's bankrolls and people are losing money hand over fist, well, I'm not going to have a business very long, right? So like I'm incentivized to provide that value, to provide things that are going to make you money. And then it just boils down to like, just trust and execute. And that's, uh, actually caution people. I tell them not to buy my stuff. If they're the type of person that's not going to trust me, because ultimately what it leads to is them making me miserable by asking questions over and over and over again, that are very obvious and that I've already proven and that I've shown them. And, you know, they also don't get the value out of the course because they're not executing the strategies. Um, so yeah, if you're not willing to put your trust in, in the stuff that I personally make, don't buy it. That's fine. <laughs> I'm totally mm-hmm. cool with that because I want to work with the folks that trust and believe and progress and grow and then become a customer for life because they just know yeah. that like the stuff that I sell is worth gold. Absolutely. 100%. So, uh, when you play on ignition, do you use a HUD? I do. Mm-hmm. Cool. What are the, because it's anonymous tables, right? You have, uh, you start with zero from any new player. I, because I started playing on ignition recently, I had to build a new HUD for it. Um, because I, you know, I just wanted to take off the HUD stats that don't accumulate really quickly. Any turn and river stats I removed from the HUD, right? Because most of it's pre-flop and flop stuff, you know, and I'm really finding so much value in four different stats, VPIP, PFR, three bet, maybe not three bet, but more AF would be a better one. Um, because a lot of people on ignition, at least at the least stakes I play 10 and L and 25 and L, there's not a lot of three betters, you right. There's a ton of limpers, a ton of callers and open razors, but not a lot of three betters, you know? So I think VPIP, PFR and AF, I really enjoy those HUD stats. Which ones do you really find yourself paying attention to when you play? Well, I have to state a disclaimer here because mm-hmm. I, firstly, I think HUD is, especially on a site like Ignition, but even in general, I think it's a little over-relied on to Mm -hmm. determine your action, Um, especially like when most of my strategies are based on data. So like, I just, that's like, (laughs) I already know, like once I create a player profile in my mind and I label that player that profile, I kind of already know what the HUD is going to look like ultimately and have strategies constructed against them specifically. So like I use VPIP, PFR, 3BET, uh, fold to three bet and C bet and fold to C bet. And I think those are really the only stats that I pay any attention to. And gotcha. even the C bet and fold to C bet stats, I don't really look at that often. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the fold to three bet stat, I think like nowadays regs, 
pretty much play preflop pretty well just in general. So I already have an expectation as to like how they're going to play. It is yeah. valuable, I guess, if you get like a fish that folds to three bets all the time and then another fish that calls all three bets, like your strategies are going to be very different yeah. facing those two different fishy profiles. Mm -hmm. But by and large, um, I use the HUD to as kind of like my fish radar and that's really the, the major use case of the HUD on ignition for me. Yeah, 100%. You want to find those fish and like a, just a big gap between VPIP and PFR. That's a critical thing. Small AF too, for me, aggression factor. Uh, small AF means they just don't like to bet a lot post-flop. They're doing a lot of calling and checking, which is great. Easier fish to target right there. Those two things are awesome. But then also, I love what you said about fold to sea bet and sea bet. I understand how it's they aren't the most uh, important stats because once you have your range and you understand who you're up against, you have a pretty good idea whether or not to bluff on most different uh, flop textures and everything like that. But I still do use them just because it is useful seeing if somebody has faced seven uh, C bets in 60 hands and they folded six out of the seven, there's a pretty good chance they're going to be folding again, right? So you're right. Uh, you do have your set kind of strategies that you, that you develop by playing for a long time, understanding your opponent's ranges and seeing that board texture. But those HUD stats always help me quite a bit, make some uh, make some good reads on my opponents. And I, I, I like what you said also about the fold to three bet, really classifying, uh, I guess, breaking down the different types of fish and how they will likely respond. And if they're going to be folding a ton to three bets, yeah, three bet them plenty, right? Get the fish heads up to yourself, but they open raise a 2.5 big blinds. That's an easy four big blind pot, two and a half plus the one and a half in the blinds for a simple three bet. And you know, everybody's folding right there. So yeah, I still use those HUD stats. And I've had a lot of people contact me over the years and say, Sky, HUD stats aren't useful before you get 100 or 200 hands. And that's not really the case at all, right? Like you can start to get a decent read on somebody in the first three orbits, 18 hands, right? If they VPIP 40%, wow, that's a pretty darn fishy player just in the first 18 hands right there. So I still do use the HUD and I recommend everybody, even if you think it's a crutch, it's at least additional information that if you're four tabling, you're not really paying attention to this guy in seat two all the time because maybe you're dealt these other hands over here, but your HUD is paying attention. So finally you get involved in a hand with him and you realize, whoa, this is a fish. And you know, you play, you take it from there. So I do use that HUD for just additional helpful info. And I think that somebody that says, uh, HUD's not useful until you have 200 hands or it's just, you know, whatever, like they have reservations about playing on a site where you can't really use a HUD to its maximal ability. I would just say like, stop being so reliant on your HUD and stop letting the HUD dictate what your decisions ought to be because you're a thinking human being and like any aggregated data like that coming from somebody that analyzes tons of data all the time. Like even if you have a hundred thousand hands on me that date back the last two years, I promise you the HUD stats are not indicative of the strategy that I deployed today Definitely because I'm currently not. growing, learning, evolving. And, and so if you take those aggregate stats and you try to use them to construct counter strategies, they're not going to be as successful because I'm changing all the time, right? It kind of uh, goes back to my thoughts on win rate. And if you know your win rate with any degree of certainty, you're doing something wrong. You're making some kind of mistake, right? Because like, as they say, oh, you need 300,000 hands to determine your true win rate and figure out where your true win rate is. And I would just challenge you to say, if you're the same player on hand one as you are hand 300,000, <laughs> you fucked up. 
Like you, you've messed up, right? You're not mm-hmm. playing poker correctly, right? So like you yeah. should really never know what your true win rate is because you're always growing, evolving, changing, and you just make peace with that and, and just yeah. make peace with like, I'm going to be the best I can. And my assumption is if I'm always working towards that, my win rate is going to be the the biggest that it can possibly be. And, you know, you just make peace and say like, okay, well, I'm just going to put in hands, put in volume and trust that I know what I'm doing. And at the end of the day, I'm going to be a profitable winning poker player. Yeah. 100%. Uh, I view the, I view win rate the exact same way, but I really like looking at win rates for very specific situations Two bet, then call three bet, uh, calling the flop C bet, calling the river bet. And when you see a highly negative win rate in any given area over a large sample, right? Like calling that river bet. If you're, if your uh, win rate is like negative 2000, over like 700 hands, 700 instances of calling two bets, then you definitely have an issue there that you need to work and address. So those negative win rates in specific spots, those help me target my own areas of of my skills that I want to improve. But also, uh, it, it, it helps me help my students know where they need to work as well. Yeah. And that's just the value in like database reviews and really like this poker strategy and just the poker players. I was speaking about this with the private coaching uh, student that I have just today and think about how I think about poker and how to go about like the making upgrades and the improvement process. I, I look at poker as a car. And for those who are mechanically inclined in the audience right now, forgive my metaphor because I do not know anything about car restoration or even cars in general, but that's the metaphor that I'm going to be using. Um, basically, car has multiple components, right? Like if your tire is flat, you don't take out the engine to fix the engine. You fix the tire. So you focus on the specific component of the car, make the upgrades necessary um, by isolating said component and then put it back in the car. And that's how I look at poker learning, poker growth, poker courses. I look at them as like, you know, pre-flop bootcamp. We're taking your pre-flop strategy out of the car. We're looking at it. We're analyzing it. We're immersing ourselves into pre-flop And then we're putting it back into your system so that your car can run much better and perform at a higher level and just taking out, you know, with Nuffle. Okay. This is your dealing with flop donk bet strategy right here. We're going to upgrade it through Nuffle. We're going to put it back in your system. And then just over time, you're upgrading these parts of your system until you're operating at a very, very high level. And I think that just serves people much better than trying to upgrade the whole car at the same time because yes. you get a lot of like scattershot approaches. There are m- multiple components to this game. It's just infinitely complex. And, and you know, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like trying to make a dent in the ocean levels by just drinking, drinking the water, right? Like you just can't do it. It's just a, it's too much. It's too massive of a problem to tackle. And that's why people feel overwhelmed. And that's why like really the number one pain point that people come to me with is like, undirected study. I don't know what to study. I don't know what to focus my energy on because like there are a hundred things you could focus your energy yeah. on that are all going to be impactful. So like, where do you start? You know, it's, uh, I, I guess it's like the, the old, the old, uh, uh what's the word basically like how, how do you eat an elephant? Right. Mm-hmm. One bite at a time, one bite like at that, a time. Yeah. That's how you go about becoming a winning, good, solid poker player as well. 
Yeah, 100%. And a uh, big thing, of course, and I love how your, your pre-flop boot camp, I mean, that's working on your foundation, right? That's working on like the engine of your car, I guess, because you cannot run without an engine. Or you're going to run really crappy and it's going to take you 17 days to get from here to Vegas or something, right? Um, so that that makes a lot of sense. I love that. I love that approach. I love that metaphor, working on your car, one thing. I've never thought of a metaphor for it. So I'll be using that with my students from now on. Thanks, Brad. You're very welcome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I also think of it as like mini games, you know, how poker is one giant game and then there are games within the game and, and just isolating those mini games, getting really good at them, putting them back in. And then naturally you perform at a higher level, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and everything pre-flop bootcamp I created because I was so tired of seeing people in greatness village using bad pre-flop strategies that it was like oh my gosh i'm not going to answer any more questions about like when you when when you're in the big blind the button opens and you three bet queen jack off out of the big blind like that's the end of the hand you messed up you don't three bet that you just flat it like what are we doing here um so it's really necessity for my own sanity was why i made pre-flop boot camp and it's not sexy, right? It's not sexy. It's not fun to teach. But like you said, it's foundational. Every hand starts pre-flop and every pre-flop decision you make snowballs into turn, turn and river, flop, turn river. Like you start out playing too many hands. Well, you're going to have to overfold post-flop because you started with too many hands pre-flop. Um, and I think too, like there's not a high level of awareness as to how pre-flop affects your overall win rate. Mm-hmm. and your strategy and that's because you don't often get direct feedback on how well you're playing preflop because a hand doesn't just end you make it to the river and then the hand ends so like i, I just think people very much overestimate their ability to play well preflop and don't understand that that's like a root cause to many of the symptoms of like paying off too much on the river overfolding on the turn whatever it might be you know that's just a symptom. The real problem is that you messed up pre-flop and you need to go back there, invest time and energy, fix that first and foremost. 100%. That's one thing I always do with my students. That's how the Poker Forge, my membership site starts off too. We work on your pre-flop game first because it's amazing. Like uh, students come to me, they've had all these issues for years, calling uh, C-bets, C-betting and facing raises. I don't know what to do in these different post-flop spots. But once we drill down and and first fix and give them a solid pre-flop foundation, a lot of those pain points post-flop just go away. Not fully away, because maybe they still don't understand what to do in that exact situation. But if they take themselves out of like a three-bet pot with queen-jack offsuit from out of position, like you had said, if you're not in that spot anymore, but instead you just called, kept the pot smaller. Sure, you're out of position, but you didn't blow the pot. Now you don't have that initiative to, to see bet, to be forced to, to feel that you need to see bet. You feel you need a double barrel, but when you're out of position, now you have some options. Check call, check fold, check raise, depending on what you think they're doing with their initial raising range. Because when you three bet with queen jack and they end up calling you, they crush your queen jack. They've got, at worst, ace-queen, ace-jack, which crushes your queen-jack, right? They've got jacks and queens and maybe tens, decent pocket pairs, right? But if you just call them with that queen-jack, yeah, they still have all their suited and off-suit aces. They're jack-ten suited. They're pocket fours. They're six-seven suited. They're queen-ten. They're queen-nine. All the stuff that your queen-jack plays pretty well against, right? Jack-five suited. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is yeah, the bottom, kind of the bottom range, opening range yeah, to the button. yeah all that kind of stuff, right? So you've kept their range wide. Now you have 
a, a preflop, not thinking about your whole range, but just that queen jack, you have a decent equity advantage or maybe not exactly an advantage, but you're not at a super disadvantage in a bigger three bet pot against a tighter range. And that's just going to help you play better, get into better spots post-flop as well. And, and there's also downstream considerations too, right? Of like, if you three bet your offsuit Broadway hands, um, you know, you have 12 combos of offsuit hands compared to four combos of suited, right? So you start three betting your queen jack off, your king jack off, your king queen off at 100% frequency, your ace jack off. Now all of a sudden, I think that was four combos that I just mentioned there. That's 48 offsuit combos you've added to your three betting range. So now when you see a flop of nine, six deuce, well, if you're over three betting, now you're going to have many more combos of those offsuit hands, which makes your range weaker, which means villains can play very well against your now weakened range because you chunked all those hands into your three betting strategy, which means you get floated more often. Villains just have a higher degree of confidence in calling your C bets with, you know, like on nine, six deuce pocket sevens is like a slam dunk call. And yeah. then if you're prone to double barreling, they just basically, they just get to call you down because now instead of just having like ace king off and ace queen off in your three betting range, you've got all of these offsuit Broadway. So you're over three betting, which means you're over bluffing post flop, which means villains get to call you down lighter, which means that like you're often in these out of position scenarios against clever thinking opponents who are observant and they're just going to eat your lunch. I mean, they're yep. just going to eat you alive. Like do not, I mean, if I'm raising the button there, and a player is over three betting, I'm so pumped. I'm so happy because like now I just get to call, realize my positional advantage, and then make great decisions against a range that I know, you know, is comprised of a lot of hands that routinely have air and are going to struggle to perform out of position. Yep. That's exactly right. And so you get the chance now. Well, so so when you make those three bets that you shouldn't with those offsuit hands like you had mentioned, you're giving your opponents that great opportunity that you strive for against those loose, aggressive over three betters, right? Like you want to be that player like you had just mentioned. You love it when you're up against an over three better in the big blind because now you get all these options. You can bet when they check. You can raise them when they bet. Bet half pot, quarter pot, whatever it is. Like you're reading them for exactly what they have, a crap hand on a hard-to-hit board in a bloated pot. You can make a decent-sized bet and just really scare them off the hand pretty easily. Or if you flop something good, just let them double barrel, triple barrel into you and just call them down. Let them spew all their chips at you. And, and it's all about frequency, right? Like maybe they're not ultra aggressive post flop. Maybe they check a lot and they don't see bet a lot. Well, that just means that they're not going to protect their checking range. And so when they check, they're going to be check folding very often. Yep, so like exactly. e even if you're not over aggressing, you could be under aggressing, right? Like it's very, very hard to play a strong, well-balanced strategy when you're just making these kind of fundamental mistakes and you have too many lower equity type hands um, in your preflop range. So like that, that's sort of what I, what I mean by preflop just sets everything up post-flop and it creates issues that like most humans never even see, understand or realize, but like, yeah. And, and I'll give this little tidbit out there to the listener for free. Uh, you may think that if villain is over three betting preflop, that the correct adjustment would be to start four betting more in position. And I would say, don't do that. Um, because what happens preflop specifically when you start four betting is you're passing up an opportunity to realize your positional advantage. You're kind of nullifying your post-flop positional advantage by reopening the action. So just overcall 
and then take the data points as they come post flop. Uh, because like, you know, that's just a thing, right? Like you just have to, you have to take the data points as they come and then construct strong, resilient strategies based on the information you're provided with. So don't just open up the action with a four bet when you're in position and then neutralize your own positional advantage by doing so. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Just calling allows you three more streets right now where you're on the button. They're out of position against you and you have so many more options right there. That makes a lot of sense. Love that point there. Yeah, it's just something I see people messing up all the time. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, I've got king queen suited here. I'm just going to four bet it. And it's like, why are you why are you giving up your positional advantage when like that is so valuable post swap? You're just and then they jam and they just fold. And it's like, and wow, you just yeah, we, we could have just realized our positional advantage and take taken data points to figure out if villains are over aggressing so that we can, you know, over float and over defend or under aggressing so that we can bet versus miss C bets and realize full equity that way. Like we just have so many future options and potential to throw them away like that is almost just a tragedy to me. <laughs> yeah, it is a tragedy doing that right there. Absolutely. I love that. I love that play. In a world where a fish dog bets the flop and you don't know what to do. One man, Coach Brad Wilson, has a surefire plan to neutralize flop leads and rip that dunk to shreds. Nuffle. Available now. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com slash nuffle. Rated R. Okay, so, yeah, we're 53 minutes in. We haven't really talked about any of the things that I had uh, prepared for us to talk about. Hey, that's um, okay. I think we covered some good ground. We covered. We can we keep covered going. Totally. Great, I've got all the time in the world. Yeah, we we've covered some great great ground, and it, it's been great just uh, discussing more pure poker strategy, right? Than like um, the typical CPG episode that is not Tactical Tuesday of diving deep into the you know my guest journey about what led them to poker and all of their success and all of that stuff. I do, in my heart of hearts, I'm a poker player, first and foremost, and I'm a professional, and this is how I've made my living for a very long time. And quite honestly, I could crank out these kind of strategic episodes at least once a day, probably two or three times a day, just because it's like like breathing to me. Mm -hmm. All you got to do is imagine your student asking you one question. You know, my, my opponent donk bet one big blind on this flop. What should I do? <laughs> I mean, given the fact that you created Nuffle, I mean, you can go on for uh, for th- 30 episodes at 10 minutes each easily on what on analyzing and what you should do in that spot. Well, unfortunately, with Nuffle, since it's only one PDF, I'm afraid of giving anything away because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's gotcha. so simple. Like, basically, I think in 15 minutes, I could give all of Nuffle away if I so uh, chose see, yeah. just because it's so simple. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, Feeding Frenzy, where I mapped out uh, every single turn and river situation, value bet thresholds, call down thresholds, facing various raise sizes, and then various follow-up bets on every single turn and river combination possible with every single hand that you could possibly have. Um, Now, that one is something that I could talk about for quite a while because it is very, very in-depth. And you mentioned it's kind of humorous thinking back on it, but like when I created Feeding Frenzy, and I had done all the data analysis and I had my spreadsheets. There were, I mean, I can't, 
it, it looked insane to somebody that was like, uh, what are you working on? Um, and then I would like show a private coaching student who had already, you know, pre-bought feeding frenzy. And I'm like, here, this is, this is, you know, feeding frenzy before it's broken down, um, visually. And I mean, it's just hundreds and hundreds of grids and hundreds and hundreds of calculations, just tons of spreadsheets that like had to be distilled down into something that's like learnable and executable. So like there's always challenges. I think that the customer never gets to see in the production process Yeah, just because um, you pare things down and try to present it easily. But like that thing was just, you know, just imagine every single turn and river combination possible. And then imagine facing various bet sizes, various lines, Oh, it, it was a, a mountain, lot. mountains of data right there for you to go through. Absolutely. It, it was, it was a chore and I could probably talk about the strategies there for a few weeks, but by and large, I mean, even that I distilled down to, uh, created something called holy heuristics, uh, whispers from the poker gods as like a bonus for feeding frenzy and basically heuristics that I had found that teach you most everything very, very quickly. So that like you, you can, understand the broad strokes very quickly. And I think that's the thing I'm probably going to continue making for my products moving forward, just because like those kind of heuristics are very, very helpful, help you logically navigate those kind of spots without, you know, having a hundred percent of the information memorized through just rote memorization. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Rote memorization, not necessarily how you want to play poker because you're up against so many different players and and it's so much information anyway to try to hard to, to, to try to memorize, right? You gotta you gotta kind of understand like a lot of the stuff that I coach and teach, I try to show them how they should um uh, uh analyze and look at the situation, all the different data points in this one hand right now. Not only you you take your past experience into account, you've seen players make this type of bet a billion times. What does it normally mean, right? But then also noticing everything else in this one hand right now and trying to figure out a way to like holistically put a big picture together of what's going on and then making your best plays. Because like really, you it's it's so hard. I've tried it before in poker. I can't really memorize certain plays on this certain board type all this time as the preflop raises, as, as a preflop caller when this comes out. I just can't remember all that stuff, you know? So I've had to devise ways to basically pay attention to the action, analyze the situation and, and consider your options and choose the one that's most positive EV. Yeah. And I think there's a misnomer and one of the, one of the higher level players in greatness village said something that really resonated with me and just a brilliant, brilliant poker player, poker coach. He said that he doesn't think poker players, uh, professional poker players do, a significantly better job of capturing data points than weaker players. The thing that he believes they do way, way more efficiently and are way superior at is prioritizing the data points and choosing the one that is most important to base your decision on. Like that's the thing that the best poker players do very well. They understand, they see the data points and then they're able to prioritize them in a way that leads them to the correct conclusion more often than not. Um, And and that's tricky because Mm -hmm. a lot of times you have conflicting data points and you have conflicting information and you must choose something to base your decision on, right? You can't just time out every time you're in a spot where you, you know, oh, well, fish under Bluff Rivers, but now I'm getting raised here and raised like minimum on the river 
and I've seen this fish make value raises before and they always shove and like, I've never faced a minimum raise. So like, what does this mean? And, and so you have these conflicting points of like, well, yeah. this player chooses large sizings with their value and yet fish by and large under bluff by raising the river. So which one do you prioritize, right? Do you, do you call lighter? Um, do you overfold? And it's stuff like that where like the better poker players are just able to make better decisions as it relates to priority. Um, and ultimately like that's just a key piece of playing poker at a high level is understanding what's important and what's not important. Right. And, you know, a lot of things, a lot of times uh, somebody will tell me like, Oh, I have the range advantage. I have the nut advantage. So I'm just going to bet. And I'm like, well, is that really the data point that should ought to take priority here? Like you just always bet this board because at 90% because you have, the nut and range advantage, like that doesn't make much sense to me. You know, sometimes we should be checking. Sometimes we should be using a smaller size. Um, so anyway, just for the listener, make it a point to notice the data points, track them, and then also practice prioritizing them. And that will go a long way towards, you know, just improving on a systematic, regular basis. That sounds like that could be your next course creating a systematic way to track the data points, tons of different hand examples, point out five different things. The quiz is what do you think is the most important data point? Bam, there's the answer. And then you continue on with your example, then go on to the next example. I think you got a good course there, Brad. Oh man. I, so first of all, I, I don't think I could make the course just because I, I would feel bad. Um, just kind of like, taking somebody else's concept and building on it and selling oh, something. I, I yeah. think there's a little bit, <laughs> you can cut that part out of the podcast. If you want, you can use it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I would make him build the course and then we would split the money. I think that's the way that I would gotcha. go about it. There you go. <laughs> but, but ultimately that is a monstrous project. I don't even know. You kind of got my, my gears turning and I don't even know how, you would go about doing such a thing. Like it, it almost feels like an art of mm -hmm. prioritizing the right data points very regularly. And I don't know how to, I mean, that, that's a thing that like, it seems very, very, very difficult to systemize a process that leads you to the right answer more often than not. Yeah, it does. And, and for any example that, so I'm just now I'm thinking about the, the idea for the course as well. Any example that you give, like you would go through your database and find the perfect hand or create the perfect hand that illustrates the point you want to make. But you know, your students, they could go through their data database and find 17 hands that contradicts <laughs> the data point, you know, the exact same situation, but the end result was completely different. So, but it, it seems like it would be the, the whole course would be geared towards forcing you to think about the data available and then choosing the one that makes the most sense to base your decision on or the one or two things, right? And yeah, you're right. It, it does seem like it's more of an art. And so me being a sciencey mathy guy, I don't think it's the kind of course that I could make. <laughs> Maybe someday, but. I mean, effectively, you would have to start. We're kind of starting on we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves, I think, because I think the place to start would just be on noticing the data points and getting into the habit of noticing the relevant data points. But the reality is like, there are just an infinite number of data points that come into play. Right. And yeah. especially if like somebody plays live poker, right. I, I think one data point that I use in an example of just the infinite number of data points that are available is like Teddy KGB. Um, who would have thought that an Oreo would be a data point on which you ought to make a 
poker decision on, right? So like mm-hmm. there are just so many different data points. Like the more observant players will pick up on stuff like the Oreo tells or timing tells and sizing tells. And that's just another thing that I think comes from being an advanced player. Um, and then two, like when we're talking data points, you know, we can take a line holistically, right. And we can say, this is over bluffed, this is under bluffed. Um, but not everybody's going to have access to the same information that you have access to as it relates to those lines and those sizings. So yeah, it's like a phew. It, it's a, I'm imagining constructing it and it just feels like it would be whew, a massive, massive and difficult undertaking. Yeah. It seems like, but, uh, so it's, it's like earlier we, I mentioned at the very beginning ideas are a dime a dozen and yeah, yeah this could are. just be one of those dime a dozen ideas. I think the reality is, um, with a lot of my courses, like with Nuffle, for instance, right? I just give call thresholds. Like I, I just tell you, if you have a hand stronger than this and your opponent bets this much, then call with this hand and you will make money, right? Like that's pretty cut and dry. And I think that like through that sort of systemization, the data points are very obvious and the priority of the data point is very obvious. Fish, donk, bets. Okay, that's a priority. Now we move into Nuffle protocol. Now we look at the sizing they use on the turn, and that's going to dictate what our turn strategy is with the specific hand category that we have. And so I think that like through the systemization like that uh, of strategies, we kind of uh, organically solve the prioritization issue because they just know what to prioritize because like, that's, right. that's the answer, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is the answer right there. Yep, yep. Um, all right, man. So... Tell the tell tell the chasing poker greatness listener. Tell them something you're working on. You mentioned the poker forge. Something you're proud of putting out in the world, and why they ought to invest their money into the poker forge. Uh, I I just I absolutely love the poker forge. It's what I didn't realize it at the time when I started Smart Poker Study. It's what everything was building towards, right? Just uh, uh, what I the way I think of the poker forge. It's your roadmap on your poker journey. I start you off with your very first steps and with the quick wins poker course. And I, I, I tell you, so I'm assuming that when you come to me, you're not like very first day player, right? You're potentially a losing or a break even player for a long time and you want to get profitable. So quick wins poker course gives you all the simplest things that you can do starting right now with your very next session, whether it's playing or study session, what you could do to start progressing on your journey the right way, start making money. And then I go into hand reading and then the preflop hand selection course and all the kind of stuff. But right now I'm really focused on my HUD mastery course. It's the ninth course within the poker forge. And this is the one. So for all those people, we had mentioned it earlier, people that think you can't get a read before 200, before 100 hands or something. This HUD mastery course is going to teach you how to learn your HUD, where all the HUD stats are, what the HUD stats tell you, understand the math behind them, and then how to start using them to understand what your opponents are up to. Now, that doesn't mean it's a HUD reliable, HUD reliant. I'm not teaching you to be reliant on your HUD, I guess I should say. You're showing the them course, I'm, which yeah, data con- prioritize, right? Like exactly, that's, that's exactly, what you're doing. Yeah. Your HUD is just another data point, one of 20 things that you can notice in any given hand, right? And then so I'm teaching you how to notice, how to understand what that specific HUD stat says in relation to 
the player's action right there. And so that's what I'm teaching. But I'm still in the hand examples I use and the discussions, the strategy discussions, we're still talking about this player just check raised you. Sure, he has a check raise stat potentially, but then what is his fold to see bet stat? How does he generally approach the flop? What kind of flop is this? It's a 10 10 5 flop, kind of a hard to hit board. If he's C betting, potentially he's bluffing, your own check raise against him could work or whatever, vice versa. I said his check raise stat at first, you know, but it's basically teaching you how to use your HUD as one more data point in, in helping uh, improve your decisions. Right. And this is a quick litmus test to the listener for how they think of data points and if they can do a better job of upgrading the way that they think about data points. If when you hear data point or somebody asks you, what are the data points of this situation? If your first response is, let me look at the HUD and see what the HUD says. You're doing a lot of things wrong because <laughs> there are many, many, many data points in every single hand, like you mentioned, um, preflop position, the formation, the sizings, C-bet, how, uh, you know, the C-bet sizing, you know, they can see bet small, they can see bet big. Are you in a position? Or are you out of position? What's the flop texture? What's the expected C-bet percentage on this board? I mean, there are so many things beyond just the HUD that yep. like, yeah, if you only, when you hear data points, if that's the first thing that pops into your mind, reflect and invest some energy into really understanding how line sizing and everything works. Because it's just, you're never going to be successful at poker if you don't understand those things. 100%. And let me tell you, the first data point for any hand I ever play is who am I up against? What is this kind of player? Because that's going to dictate everything, right? What his preflop range is, uh, trying to understand his sizings, what he thinks about his position. I mean, so much just starts with the player type. And that's why, like with the HUD, I just, I'm in love with VPIP and PFR. Because those two, even if you haven't been watching the player forever, you haven't seen that he's limped in, he's three bet three times. Just see that VPIP and PFR, that gives you that initial indication of what kind of player he likely is now all of your reads on the situation are helped a little bit by knowing that like if if you told me um if you told me sky i got three bet by this player in the big blind and i said oh what kind of player was he and you say i don't know it's the very first hand he three bet the standard nine big blinds i would say wow that's kind of tough right there you can't make any read on him you could give him a three betting range at nine big blinds from the big blind you could develop that based on the average player that you see making three bets in that spot at your stakes. But it really does help to know if he's capable of bluffing, if he's only a value better right here. And so for me, data point number one is always player type. And I would just say that like, even if a player has played no hands, you can still understand through analyzing data points within data points. Of well, what like if he bought in play? for 40 big blinds? That That's tells true. you something as opposed to buying in for a full hundred, you know? What if somebody opens for 4X instead of 2.5? What if somebody three bets minimum yeah. instead of 3X? Like mm -hmm. what if somebody, you know, you race under the gun and somebody flats in middle position, which shouldn't be a thing. Um, when you, uh, uh, That's another part of, you know, the value of understanding a strong pre-flop strategy is that whenever somebody does something that's not supposed to be a thing, it yeah. jumps right off the page. You're able to recognize it instantly and then profile that player is most likely a fish, um, yeah. which is very valuable because the quicker you profile them, the quicker you get to deploy, you know, your fish destroying strategies and the more money that you ultimately make. So like really you, you just, everything kind of starts with preflop. And then, like you said, understanding what good preflop play is supposed to 
look like, allows you to identify the profile. Identifying the profile allows you to deploy your strategies. Deploying your strategies ultimately makes you money. So let's start doing the things that just make us money when we play poker. Exactly. Um, 100%, yeah. Cool, man. So it's uh, the URL to that is thepokerforge.com? Yep, thepokerforge.com, nice and simple. Awesome. And if you want to check that out, head to thepokerforge.com. Do we have a free month? Do we have any sort of sample? What do we got for new subscribers, Sky? Uh, for there are three full length videos on the pokerforge.com page, full length videos taken from different courses. So you could check those out. Um, I periodically offer like for this mother's day, which just passed recently, I offered the 10 days for $10 deal. Plus I was your poker mom for that, for the 10 days. And then when I was your poker mom, you tell me, you give me your stats and win rates off this tracker I give you. And I'll tell you where your most, uh, uh, most important areas of opportunity are and which videos, because you only have 10 days for that $10 in the Poker Forge, which videos are going to give you the biggest bang for your buck right there. And so that was me being your Poker Mom. So occasionally once a month or so, I offer some different promos. But if you want to find out what promos are going on, you just got to uh, be a member of smartpokerstudy.com, my mailing list. Awesome, man. And yeah, the, the follow-up question there for the Chasing Poker Greatness listener outside of smartpokerstudy.com and the Poker Forge, where else can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? Uh, YouTube, Smart Poker Study. Uh, Twitter, Smart Poker Study. That's, that's basically where everything begins right there. That's the easy way. And any sort of podcast aggregator, just search Smart Poker Study and... Yep. Yep. Apple podcast, Google podcast, it'll be there. And there's also, I have links on my website, smartpokerstudy.com. You just click that podcast button. There's different links to whatever your podcast platform is. Click it and you can find it right there. Awesome, man. It's been a pleasure having you on today. Thank you for your time and your energy. I very much enjoyed it. And guess what? Since we didn't ask a lot of the typical CPG questions, that just means you get to come back in the near future. And I think that's a win for it's a win-win-win, me, you, and the audience. 100%. Thank you very much for this opportunity, Brad. I had fun. Take care. All right, you too. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community. Book a coaching session or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.